Hello, I'm Lucy. And I'm Michelle. And welcome to this special episode of Tudoriferous, the fortnightly biographical podcast that examines lives in the Tudor era. And today, not a person, but syphilis. Mm-hmm. Yay! <laughs> First, just to proviso, this episode is not suitable for children. <laughs> Cover little ears. (laughs) There's no nice way to talk about syphilis. I've kept the descriptions Mm. of the disease to a minimum. Thank you. (laughs) But in many cases, the description of the cures is just as bad. Um, So be warned, it's a nasty disease. Simple as that. Yeah, but it's new to the Tudor era, so it is something we would like to explain, just because they wouldn't have understood it either. No, and... It's quite interesting because it provides it, it provides history and also it stems from history as well. Mm-hmm. And I thought I'd forego the come with me, if you will, for this episode since I, I couldn't think yes. I couldn't think of anywhere to take you. <laughs> oh my goodness! Not a sufferer. <laughs> Let's not describe it from the view of a sufferer. Well, that's yeah, that's it. The primary sources are usually by people either suffering from the disease or treating it, and. They go into a lot of detail, which you don't need to know, really. I suppose you could have done Come With Me from the viewpoint of the virus. That would have been hilarious. (laughs) Oh, well, too late now. (laughs) Yeah, well, there's a different attitude to sexual matters that had come in at the end of the Middle Ages, because previously sex, the church taught, was purely for procreation, even within marriage. And sex for any other purpose was sinful. But during the Renaissance, you had the Neoplatonic philosophers saying, for instance, growing fonder of one's body is a step in the direction of growing fonder of wisdom and consequently of God. Which is an interesting attitude for Catholic Europe, I thought. Yeah, I couldn't see who that quote was from, but some Neoplatonic philosopher. I mean, it might have just been his opinion. Who knows? I don't know, but that's very unexpected. Mm. And even in the church, licentiousness was tolerated because we've already heard that Alexander the Sixth had syphilis, as did Julius the <laughs> Second and Leo the Tenth. His wife into the Madonna. <laughs> yes. Oh, sorry, his mistress into well, the Madonna. Yes, not the wife. Can't marry if you are a pope. All the popes of the Renaissance time had children, except for Leo the Tenth, and he was said to be homosexual. So you can see why Savonarola was so angry at the church, and why he gained such a following. Yes. The word syphilis was first used in a poem by Fracasta in 1530. He was an Italian physician, poet, mathematician, geographer, and astronomer. And I thought I might read the poem here. Okay. But I looked it up and it runs to three books. No, please don't. (laughs) (laughs) Some of it's probably way too graphic. (laughs) It's called Syphilis or the French Disease. And it's about a shepherd boy who goes by the very pretty name of Syphilius who overturned Apollo's altar and was punished with a horrible disease. So, well, that sounds like a barrel of laughs, doesn't it? <laughs> Why is it the French disease? Every country names it somebody else's I'm disease. I'm coming to that, yes. <laughs> In a medical treatise of 1512, the French physician Jacques de Betancourt was the first to use the phrase morbus venereus, or venereal disease. So that's your bit hmm. of syphilitic etymology there. So they actually knew that it was yes. transmitted that. Wow. Yeah. You would think since they were still using the humors and bloodletting that they wouldn't realize that there was a specific transmission. I wondered about that, but certainly on men and I think on women too, the initial initial ulcers oh. started in that area. So, Okay, that makes more sense. Charles VIII's Italian campaign. Yes, we're, we're back here again. On the 1st of September 1494, Charles VIII of France rode into Italy at the head of a large army consisting largely of mercenaries, French, Flemish, Gascons, Swiss, even Italians and Spaniards, which is odd because they're meant meant to be on the other side. But anyway, on the 31st of December, they entered Rome and they were in Naples by the 22nd of February 1495, accompanied all the way by a coterie of prostitutes. Oh my gosh. (laughs) They seem to have been accepted quite happily by the Neapolitans. Um, as the soldiers, I mean, not the prostitutes. Well, the prostitutes as well. <laughs> Probably the prostitutes more than the soldiers. Charles VIII himself entered Naples on the twelfth of May, 
and I don't know, I don't know what he'd been up to in the meantime. He arrived dressed as a Byzantine emperor for reasons of his own. Just a week later, he left, and this was partly because the Spanish army had just arrived in Sicily, which was owned by Ferdinand of Aragon. Also, as we heard, some of the city-states that had happily capitulated to him were now turning against him. And also, and possibly even worse, his troops had rapidly overstayed their welcome in Naples and were starting to show symptoms of a new and terrible disease. The French called it the Neapolitan sickness, and as you say, the Italians called it the French sickness. <laughs> and I had read that half of Charles's army were so ill with syphilis that they were unable to travel, and I've since heard that the ranks of the army were reduced to just one-tenth. Oh, my Lord. Well, when you've only got so many prostitutes and everybody's using the same people, that would spread pretty quickly. What comes around goes around, I think, yes. Oh. <laughs> no pun intended. I suddenly thought as I said it. <laughs> <laughs> this is definitely not for children. <laughs> Doctors treating soldiers following the Battle of Fornovo, which is the battle between Charles and the Holy League, because when Charles was trying to leave Italy, they, they sort of cornered him by the Alps. Right. Everything's sounding like a, like a euphemism now. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> the doctors started to describe pustules that looked like millet, excruciating pain in the limbs, and even people who lost eyes, noses, hands, and feet to the disease. In the summer of 1495, wow. having made it back to... How many, sorry, how many months was that in there? I'm trying to figure out... How long it takes for the disease to develop that badly that you would start losing? Yeah, it's interesting that, isn't it? Um, yeah, because I, I thought noses and eyes were much, much longer. That's your tertiary situation, yeah. isn't it? But maybe we're talking about the prostitutes at that point. Oh, maybe. Because mm, they might have been carrying it for a lot longer. Or whoever started it. Uh, if... If we go with the assumption that the Spaniards brought it back from the New World and they've got Spanish mercenaries, it's possible that they could have been the starting point. Yeah, because then you, you've got three years from 1492. Yes. In the summer of 1495, having made it back to France, Charles VIII's army was demobbed and sent back to their various countries. Oh, and of course, they wouldn't think anything about, no. you know, sleeping with people there. No. The spread around Europe. By 1497, the disease was being reported all over France and the Holy Roman Empire. It was said to have reached Holland when a Spanish fleet arrived there in August 1496, bringing the daughter of Isabella of Castile, Joanna, to her wedding with Philip the Handsome. Mm-hmm. You know, this is actually an interesting side note. We sit there thinking about everybody being one with God and trying to avoid sin, and all of a sudden you really notice the promiscuous promiscuity that was happening yeah for it to spread that rapidly and that widely well certainly during the alexander pope alexander episode i was i was quite quite shocked at just the, the promiscuity and that's within the church i mean it's yeah me too yeah. but at the same time you're thinking okay maybe that was just rome this episode is showing us that it was the entirety of the european continent it was, i think yeah I mean, we heard that the Bishop of Winchester ran the biggest brothel in the <laughs> Yeah. Oh, my. Enterprising man. <laughs> he knows where there's a market. Less oh, than a decade geez. after the Battle of Fornovo, the whole of Europe was affected. I don't mean everybody. I mean the whole, the whole of the area. It had arrived in England by 1497, having been carried from Bordeaux to Bristol, where it was known as the Bordeaux Sickness. <laughs> it was reported by a London doctor, William Close, that half of his patients were suffering from the same new symptoms, and he called it a pestilent infection of filthy lust. Appropriate. It also made it as far as Scotland, brought apparently by the German mercenaries who accompanied Perkin Warbeck. Oh, thank you, Perkin. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's amazing how all these little snippets of history bring syphilis with it. With um, Joanna, yes. Joanna and Philip and now Perkin. And in 1499, the disease had reached Scandinavia. Different areas had different approaches to this new disease, some granting compensation to sufferers, others banning them from entering the city walls. In Scotland, mm -hmm. sufferers were told to assemble on the beach at Leith, where boats would be waiting to take them to an island in the Firth of Forth. 
Well, this never actually happened. I'm not sure why not. I don't know if no one turned up or something. But the Scottish policy appeared to be to make a syphilitic colony, like you get a leper colony offshore. Where supposedly they can't spread it. That was the hope. Yeah, you just leave them there until they're better, I suppose. Or dead. Or dead. (laughs) (laughs) Or in this case, mad and then dead. The prioress of the Hotel Dieu in Paris set up a hospital to help sufferers, but there were so many that they were being turned away, and a shanty town of syphilitics grew around the Hotel Dieu. Until the canons of the Notre Dame raised the money to get rid of them. I wasn't sure what the money was for, whether they were going to found a hospital or to find accommodation further away or just sort of buy them off. Or hire mercenaries (laughs) to move them along. (laughs) Well, yeah, it's... um, The authorities in Paris did issue an edict saying that sufferers should present themselves at Saint-Denis, where they'd be given four sous, which I don't think is a lot of money, and told to get out of town on pain of hanging. So, Oh, my. The naming of the disease, as we've said, reflected the prejudice of those doing the naming. The Muscovites called it the Polish disease. The Poles called it the German disease. The Germans, the Germans, the Germans, the Germans called it the French sickness, <laughs> as did the English and Italians. Africans called it the Portuguese sickness. The Flemish and the Dutch called it the Spanish sickness, and the Spaniards just called it Las Bubas, which implied that the buck stopped there, really, doesn't it? Well, here's the question then: Can we use who they called the disease after as a political statement for their current? relations with that country i think it's a bit like i mean we have irish jokes here what we don't anymore because we're all pc but we used to and yep most countries seem to have somebody that they joke about don't they that uh, yes so maybe yeah calling diseases after people is a similar thing but i suppose also you, you should be able to plot where the disease went by who calls it what i suppose because if, if the it might indicate where it came yeah. from yeah. Hmm. Maximilian I, the Holy Roman Emperor's secretary, Grunbeck, was unfortunate enough to catch the disease following a dinner which he said was attended by Venus as well as Bacchus and Ceres, which is a very, ah. very nice poetical way of saying you've got a hideous disease. He gave a very graphic description of the symptoms, which I will not quote here. But he also said that when he finally admitted to his friends that he caught the box, my very dear friends turned their backs on me as if some pursuing enemy had his sword at their throats without giving a single thought to the obligations of human fellowship and friendship. Fear. Yeah. Fear, disgust, I suppose. Yeah. Gurum Peck writes eloquently of his own suffering and that of Maximilian's soldiers, but it didn't prove fatal for him as he lived to be 81. Wow, good for I him. I don't know what he was like when he was 81. How much of him was left of it, sir? Maximilian also succumbed to the disease, which was said, really, yeah, which he said to have caught in Italy. Oh. Um, but he testified to a miraculous cure brought about by hours of intensive prayer at a holy shrine. You'd think if it was that easy, everyone would do it, but there we go. <laughs> Gaspar Torella. One of the first people to publish works on the disease was Gaspar Torella. He studied medicine at Montpellier and had the protection of one Rodrigo Borgia. So when Borgia became Pope Alexander VI, he followed him to Rome. In fact, Torella dedicated his work on the unknown sickness to Cesare, whose physician he was, which shows a certain amount of foresight in the circumstances. (laughs) Yes, and very appropriate. (laughs) Yes, because when Cesare contracted the disease, Torella treated him (laughs) by pumicing the pustules and applying herb poultices. That sounds painful. I don't want to be pumiced. No. I, I'm assuming that means like taking a pumice stone and using it as kind of like sandpaper to I'm open them up. So. I'm just thinking about what, um, we'll go back to this <laughs> in the Pope's episode when they were both possibly poisoned and they dunked Cesare in a cold bath. And when he came out, he hadn't got any back to, to speak of. I wonder whether that's been overly pumiced. Oh. Anyway, Johnny, Johnny Times. He was well rewarded when Cesare showed signs of getting better. But, as we shall see later, a remission after the first sign of ulcers is part of the course of the disease. Cesare's increasingly erratic, violent and just plain psychopathic behaviour has been put down to psychological derangement brought on by syphilis. 
Right. Or he may have just been a complete bastard, I suppose. We don't know. So Netflix in Canada right now has this amazing documentary about pirates. Mm-hmm. And there is some suggestion that Blackbeard caught syphilis. So when he started, you started seeing him where he'd light tapers on his beard and stuff, that that was part of the disease. He he honestly started going mad due to syphilis mm. and was doing strange things. And that's when he became the most feared pirate. Wow. Yeah, it must be, the place must have been riddled with mad people, wasn't it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not like there were a ton of women there. No. Mm. Share and share alike. <laughs> that was that was the pirate code, wasn't it? Share and sharing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. Equal shares to everybody. <laughs> oh my gosh. Mm. Anyway, Torella claimed to have cured people of the disease with a course of purges, bloodletting, sedations, sweating. Actually. If you, if you type in Tudoriferous, sometimes you get Sudoriferous, don't you? Which is ex- <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> excessive sweating. Resinous frictions. I don't like the sound of that. Pills of celandine and aloe. Well, that sounds a bit nicer. He also yeah. suggested that once the pustule appears on the penis, you must act fast and immediately wrap the said penis in a pigeon which has been plucked and flayed alive or a live frog cut in two, whichever you have handy at the oh, time. my... Oh, that's so gross. Hmm. Torella, rather more sensibly, suggested that civil and religious authorities should appoint matrons whose primary task would be to examine streetwalkers. If found to be infected, he said they should be confined in a place designated by the parish until they were better. So, I mean, he obviously believed that prevention was better than sticking a penis inside a dead pigeon. <laughs> yes. I'm sorry, I can't wrap my head around that being a cure to anything. <laughs> what in your right mind would ever make you think that that was the way to go? It might stop the itching. Uh, that's even worse. Wow. Well, I might cut quite a lot of this this, this episode. <laughs> <laughs> the 16th century. From the beginning of the 16th century, the virulence of the disease declined. It had been most virulent for seven years. In fact, the symptoms changed on several occasions, as was, as was recorded by Fracaster. Okay, virulent meaning uh, extreme or causing death, or are we talking about its ability to transmit? Um, I think we're talking about the actual symptoms. Okay. I mean, presumably the virus mutated, as we're saying now. Yes. Which obviously they wouldn't have known. What the reasons for the changes in the symptoms, but uh, that's what we would assume yeah. now. Well, killing your host is kind of counterintuitive for a virus, so it makes sense that the ones that don't kill the host get spread longer. Mm. Although they keep it could just keep you alive long enough to spread it a fair bit already, doesn't yes. it? It was pronounced by some that the disease was in decline and would very soon be gone. It's a bit like Ooh. yeah, the war will be over by Christmas, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Or or this will only be like six months of a shutdown. Yes. It's good to me that actually people are quite used to that idea because the Black Death, in its devastating form, that wiped out you know, huge swathes of Europe, did eventually wane, right. didn't it? And the sweating sickness, which obviously we haven't had yet, but we'll have it in next season, flared up and then died down again and disappeared completely, didn't it? So yes. people must have understood that these things take their course. Yeah. Although it wasn't as virulent, there were more cases in Europe and it was continu- continuing to spread Africa, India, because Vasco da Gama had been there in 1498. Thank you, Mr. Mr. da Gama. Thank you. China <laughs> and then Japan, probably taken by Chinese pirates. Right. Yeah, I was just thinking poor um, John Cabot didn't get there, but syphilis did. <laughs> <laughs> so what to do with syphilitics? Syphilitics sounds rather, I don't know, it's not a nice friendly word is it? it sounds a bit disparaging but anyway yes there were several attempts in france to found hospitals exclusively for syphilis patients but the money and the inclination were lacking it's generally believed by people not suffering from the disease that it was their own damn fault in italy there are already different hospitals for different categories categories of patients which you know if you consider you're probably going to have to share a bed i mean it makes more sense Ooh. yeah when you don't want to have a wounded person tucked up with someone with an infectious disease do you so the italian no. italians were quite, quite ahead of their time on that one mm-hmm. 
The Grand Bureau of Paupers in Paris organised outpatient treatment on condition that patients could prove that they caught the illness through misfortune and not through immoral behaviour. So I suppose if you said your loving hubby had had the disease and gave it to you, Uh, that might be acceptable. Erasmus, in a play, had two men, Gabriel and Petronius, discussing what should be done with sufferers. Gabriel advocates burning them. Oh my goodness. At which Petronius is suitably shocked. But Gabriel points out that he's only suggesting what the doctor does, who cuts off parts of a body and cauterizes it, but he's applying it to society and not just a body. Erasmus also has Petronius say that the practice of greet- greeting people with a kiss must be abolished, because we've seen that that was, that was quite prevalent, especially, especially in England, bizarrely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Other poems and woodcuts refer to Dame Pox, sometimes accompanied by Cupid and surrounded by crippled and bandaged and ulcerated miserable people. Oh my goodness. I was just thinking, because when you were saying they could get it by misfortune, what about all the children that caught it from their mother during childbirth? Mm. So yeah, that would definitely be misfortune and not poor behavior. Yeah. Uh, people were terrified of it. The artist Albrecht Dürer wrote, God save me from the French disease. I know nothing of which I am so afraid. Nearly every man has it, and it eats up so many that they die. And a poem in fifteen twelve by Jean, oh, Droin. I'll go with Droin. Gives sound advice on how to avoid Dame Pox. It tells you, for instance, always to make love with the light on, so you can see the state of the person you're in bed with. Oh my goodness! Well, Machiavelli tells us that good old Cesare spent some night with a prostitute in Naples. He'd gone there to negotiate marriage terms for his sister. I got sidetracked, obviously. And when he lit a candle afterwards, he realised that she was a balding, toothless old crone. And she was so hideous that he was instantly sick all over her. Holy (laughs) cow! (laughs) Night of of romance. So Jean Drouin goes on to say, avoid blotchy folk. So some good advice there. Mm -hmm. The explanation of its origin... So how do people account for the sudden arrival of this disease? Well, there are many rumours doing the rounds. Intercourse between a leprous knight and a courtesan. Unnatural acts with with monkeys. I remember remember when AIDS was mentioned with that as well. You'd think we'd have come on from there, but no, we haven't. Spaniards mixing lepers' blood and Greek wine is one of them. Neapolitans poisoning whales. Again, it's just picking on your natural enemy and assuming that it's them. The Moors in yeah. revenge are being evicted from Spain, and of course, God's wrath. As usual, it seemed to be used as an excuse to start blaming your enemies. Gratifyingly, I didn't find evidence of Jews being blamed for this one. Oh, really? Well, I'm wondering if it's because they kept marriage within the faith. You know, it might have been in their favour for this one. Yes, mm. and they definitely didn't stray as much, mm. I guess, to not get it. Yeah. It was also thought to be caused by the conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter in the sign of Scorpio and the house of Mars. Well, I don't know what that means, but I'm I'm sure it's terrible. Oh, yes. Surprisingly, although one of the main explanations for the origin of the disease now is that it came from the New World, that was not thought of at the start. That theory first appears in a letter from a man called Oviedo, and this was in the 16th century. Oh, okay. Ooh, that's a long time later. Well, he was from the fif- from 1513, the royal superintendent of the gold and silver mines in the New World, and he'd seen natives there with the disease, but not in such a virulent form that it took in Europe. Right. So he sort of put two and two together and thought, ah, but it comes from here. Two other people of note expanded the theory, and then it took off as the theory. I wonder if they can prove that, because... Just because it wasn't as virulent doesn't mean that they didn't get it from the conquistadors having sex with the women over there. Well, I think it was partly, it was quite comforting for the Europeans to think they caught it. You know, it's not us, it's those savages over there. Yeah. I tried to find out if Ferdinand and Isabella disputed this theory, since it did put them in the awkward position of having been the instigators of a disease that ravaged Europe. Mm -hmm. I didn't find anything. I haven't come across it in my research for Isabella. I mean, the fact that the Spaniards didn't have a name for the disease, which implicated another race, implies that they might have accepted the theory. Although you'd think it would be then the American disease, wouldn't you? Yes. Another suggestion brought in later was that syphilis had been taken to the New World from Africa by the slave trade. 
But transportation of slaves to America didn't start until 1503, and syphilis broke across Europe in 1495, so that's probably just a racial slur. Mm -hmm. But before we start blaming Columbus, we should look at the dates. His first voyage, the famous 1492 Ocean Blue one, they brought back Mm -hmm. six indigenous people, which is quite a small number to be responsible for a sexual pandemic. Yes. His second voyage returned in 1496, so that would have been too late to be responsible. However, between Columbus's two voyages came others under the command of Antonio de Torres, the first of which brought back 26 natives of both sexes, and the second about 300. You know, lucky people. Mm-hmm. Columbus captured men with their wives, saying that they had a better chance of survival if they had their wives with them. But Torres brought women back for a very different reason. And yes. it's thought that some of them may have been taken to Naples as prostitutes. So poor old Columbus may have been maligned for all this. I mean, one thing you could say about John Cabot is he's unlikely to have taken smallpox to the New World and he's unlikely to have brought syphilis back. Well, he did only stop for a few minutes on a beach where somebody had been. <laughs> he was probably thinking ahead, wasn't he? He was probably thinking, well, I'm not, I'm not cutting off here. Yep. Yep. I don't want to be responsible for a pandemic. <laughs> Bless him. An alternative theory, the disease may have been indigenous to Europe, but may have been lying dormant. It may suddenly have evolved into a more virulent form. And this could well be so when you consider how quickly it evolved into a less virulent form at the beginning of the 16th century. And it's also possible that it evolved into more virulent forms on several other occasions throughout history, and that explains the discovery of bones carrying what looks like syphilitic lesions in places as far afield as Russia, Egypt, China, Colorado, and St Mary's Hospital, London. Well, yeah, where they dug up a graveyard a while ago. But it wasn't until the 1700s that people started disputing the American origin story, and they scoured ancient texts for examples of the disease which sounded like syphilis. So Job, David, Solomon, the Gilgamesh story, Herodotus, Juvenal, Pliny the Younger, they all mention something, something similar. But the argument goes on. Treatment for syphilis. Brace yourself. (laughs) Okay. Physicians generally stuck to the teachings of Galen, distinguishing four varieties of what at this time was beginning to be known as the pox. Sanguine, bilious, pituitary, and melancholic. Okay. Medicines were considered hot, wet, dry, or cold, in line with Galen's Mm -hmm. teaching of the four humours. The cure had to be the opposite to the disease. A hot medicine cured a cold disease. Okay. Guayacum was a sudorific wood. I don't know how you discover a wood is sudorific, unless the wood actually sweats. I don't know. I don't know either. Mm. But it makes the patient sweat, therefore rebalancing their humours. Mercury made the patient salivate, which had the same outcome. Ooh, what is that rhyme? A night with Venus and a lifetime with Mercury? Yes, indeed. Mm. But those were the two main treatments. So, Guayac. The first published recipe using Gaiac was printed in 1518 and was called A Recipe for Using a Wood for the France Disease and Other Running Open Sores. Yes. The bark of the guaiacum tree is reduced to a powder, infused, and a decoction made. The patient is put on starvation rations and has to drink this de- decoction every day and is then wrapped in blankets and left to sweat it out. And if you don't die of it, maybe you'll survive a little longer. Yeah, well, many people swore that they had been cured by this treatment. But then again, they might have just hit the remission and thought, well, hey, we're better. The tree is native to the Caribbean, which was probably introduced to Europe soon after Columbus's voyage. So they're very keen to make links in medieval medicine. So the fact that the disease was thought to come from the New World and the cure came from there too would probably be sufficient to prove its efficacy. Right. And there was a financial and political consideration linked with Guayac. 
as there often is with these lucrative cures for diseases. Mm-hmm. The monopoly of the importation of Gaiac was obtained by the German banking family, the Fugers. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. I don't speak German. Thanks to help by the Fugers, Charles V became Holy Roman Emperor. He also became King of Spain and so controlled trade between Europe and the New World. And he was presumably indebted to the Fugas and gave them a monopoly on the trade. Okay. It was beneficial to the Fugas that people should believe in the efficacy of Guayac, which was making them extremely wealthy. Yes. Charles himself almost certainly had syphilis, by the way. It'd be interesting to keep a tally on how many of these heads of state did have syphilis. Yes, and then how many of them went mad? That would be interesting too. It might explain the politics of the time, wouldn't it? Yes. Mm. Mercury. Even Galen discredited mercury, which had been used since 1300 for skin complaints. In some cases, the pustules caused by the disease went away only to be replaced by the pustules caused by the use of mercury. Okay. Torello was all in favour of it in his first treatise, but then turned against it in his second since it caused shaking, loosening of the teeth and paralysis. Oh my goodness. It also caused uncontrollable salivating for which one doctor recommended applying a red-hot poker to the head. <gasps> so what's the thinking behind that? I don't know. Mm. It's hot and dry. Well, that's true, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Oh, oh, it all makes perfect sense. I bet that's... What's the thinking behind it? Mm. Mercury overtook Gaiac in popularity, despite the efforts of the Fugas. Uh, it could be taken in the form of a plaster that is smeared all over the body, apart from the head and the heart. And then the patient was wrapped in bandages. Or you could take it burnt in a fumigation tent known as a tabernacle. And the patient would stand in the tent with a fire consisting of cinnabar, which is mercuric sulphide. Cinnabar sounds quite nice, doesn't it? But it's mercuric sulphide. And they had to breathe in the fumes. And this would often lead, as we've heard, to increased salivation. But that was a good thing. It was the bad syphilitic humours leaving the body. Oh, of course it was. Ditto sweating and diarrhoea. So nice. Some remedies said that the sufferer should should endeavour to expel four litres of saliva. Oh, it didn't say over what period this quantity had to be expelled. It sounds oh my so goodness, isn't it? Mercury made into a paste was in England called Baxter's cream, which sounds very benign. Yeah, it consisted of lard, beeswax, herbs, and mercury, and in fact contained thirty five percent of mercury. Very little of the mercury would be absorbed by the skin. It's not very absorbent that way. But it was always okay. recommended that the mercury was applied in front of a fire, which meant that the fumes would affect everyone in the room, you know, the patient, the family, and the doctor. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Rabelais, in his wonderful book Pantagruel, paints a picture of poxy and gouty wretches undergoing the mercurial treatment. Oh, we have seen them so many times when they are thoroughly oiled and covered in ointment and their faces shone like the key plate of a charnel house and their teeth quivered like the keys of an organ or a spinet when they played and they foam at the mouth like a wild boar driven into the toils by hounds. There's a great love of the simile, isn't he, old Rebelais? Yes. Dr. Jean Fernel was a fierce opponent of the mercury treatment, which he said is not the antidote to the venereal sickness, but the invention of quacks, and men of honour should never risk such a deceptive, uncertain and cruel course of treatment. And he goes on to list the side effects of mercury treatment. Ulcerated mouth, loose teeth, copious and fetid saliva, no appetite. Well, that's understandable, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Unquenchable thirst, unintelligible speech due to the mouth ulcers and possibly perforated palate, and sometimes deafness. Oh my goodness. It just shows how awful the disease must have been to put yourself through that course of treatment. Yeah, definitely sounds worse than the disease at this point. Well, maybe not. I'm not sure. But was it effective? Well, yes, in the sense that a syphilitic patient treated with mercury would take longer to die than an untreated one. Really? Yeah, and for the first few years at least, it might make the patient feel better. As both syphilis and regular doses of mercury cause death, but apparently syphilis will kill you quicker. So, yeah. really, Definitely the devil in the deep blue sea, really, isn't it? There. Oh, I just I made the complete assumption that you would die faster treating it with mercury because then you're just combining the two diseases. Maybe, hmm. well, maybe it did have some counteracting effect. 
up to a point. Maybe it, but as it destroyed the host, it also destroyed the virus. Yes. <laughs> so early on, syphilis was treated with mercury and guaiac. But later in the 17th century, the pox was thought, presumably by the Puritans, to be punishment for lascivious living and shouldn't be treated at all since it was God's will. Oh my goodness. Okay. Evidence from the archives of prisons, hospitals and asylums imply that one-fifth of the population might have been affected at one, any one time in the 18th century. But obviously in those particular places, there would probably be a higher proportion of sufferers anyway, because if, you, if you're in an asylum, you, you might yeah. be mad because you've got it, don't you? Or in a hospital, yes. or in prison. Well, these things go around prisons very quickly, don't they? Yeah. Mercury was used until the beginning of the 20th century, even though doubts about its efficacy arose, as we've heard, long, long before that. Other treatments. Some physicians decried the danger of using mercury and advocated arsenic instead. I suppose I shouldn't be too surprised, because if you think about it, chemotherapy for yeah. cancer does a lot of damage as well. Mm. Many remedies were doing the rounds, including immediately after intercourse, wrapping the relevant area with a mixture of wine, shavings of gaiac, flakes of copper, mercury, gentian root, red coral, ash of ivory, and burnt horn of deer. And you can't help feeling that by the time you've amassed all that lot, the romantic feeling might have passed. <laughs> <laughs> and it did seem to, it just seemed to a ludicrous amount of forward planning. But uh, one, yes. one doctor recommended steeping a cloth in this concoction and carrying it around you with you on the off chance. Wow. Mm. I suppose it's no different from carrying a condom, but... I don't know. That's one thing. Mm. <laughs> Another so-called cure was to shut the sufferer up in a steam room for a month. Can you survive? Well, no, is the answer to that. Yeah, it caused the mouth and throat to swell up, the teeth to fall out, the victim to drool constantly, which is, you know, another way of getting rid of your nasty humours. But yeah. but it did nothing from what I could see to treat the syphilis. But maybe it put it put, it put your sufferings of syphilis into perspective. <laughs> One man said that he'd undergone this treatment 11 times. You'd think by the 11th time, you'd think, well, this isn't working. But he, yeah. he said he'd known men to be suffocated by it. In fact, he, he had suffered so appallingly from both disease and supposed cure that a kind friend of his suggested his own cure. Suicide. Oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. In Rome, people paid large sums to purchase barrels of olive oil in which they could immerse their whole bodies for hours on end. So that sounds a lot more pleasant than any of the other. Yeah, it brought relief from the pains of the ulcers and was relatively efficacious, but you know, hardly a cure. However, unscrupulous no. traders then sold the olive oil in the market for cooking. <gasps> oh my god, that's disgusting! Mm. No! Really? That's what I read. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, even if the person wasn't syphilitic, that's still disgusting. It's not nice. No. Yeah. Several doctors pointed out that there's no remedy will work without fasting, purifications and penitence. So if you're not sorry, it won't mm -hmm. work. And yes. it was thought by some that the disease could be caught through corrupt air. And that was obviously how the members of the clergy had caught it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because they weren't up to naughty stuff. You know better. <laughs> <laughs> the initial ulcers would heal up and go away after a few weeks anyway. That didn't mean that the disease had gone away. It was just lying low, waiting to pounce. Yeah. Yet that must be how the doctors made their money, I should think. Look, the ulcer's gone. I've cured you. Yeah. Give me the money and I'll get the hell out of here. Yeah. It would be back. From the, yeah, this is, I found this fascinating. From the 1400s onwards, plastic surgery had been used in Europe for things like war wounds. And apparently nose surgery was known from ancient India and Byzantium. And having heard about the preferred punishment of the Byzantine emperors, you can sort of guess what that was for. Right, because they cut off the noses of somebody so they couldn't become the emperor. Yeah. And then one of them did it anyway. He did, with his golden nose. Yes. Um, if people haven't listened to Talus Rankium, they're not going to have a clue what we're talking no. about. <laughs> but Rob and Jamie will. <laughs> Sicilian surgeon Branca Menuti and his son Antonio were apparently the first to use a particular type of rhinoplasty, which was then taken up in the 16th century by Gaspar Taliagozzi, and this was a time when it could be used to cover up the ravages 
that tertiary syphilis could wreak on the soft tissues of the nose. And I'll put a picture of this on the face on Facebook because it is amazing. And I've seen photos of similar things in, after the First World War. But this is the Middle Ages. I mean, what they did, they took a flap of skin from the upper arm. Okay. Because they presumably discovered that once you cut the skin away completely, it starts to die. So this is a graft, not a transplant. And the patient was bound up in a complex series of straps, which meant that they had their hand tied to the top of their head so that their upper arm was held in front of their face. And then the flap of skin from the upper arm was grafted on, onto where the nose had been. With no anaesthetic. No anaesthetic. And no antibiotic, antibiotics. No. Yeah, they had to stay like that for several weeks wow. while the, the graft gradually took. And then eventually it could be cut away from the arm if, obviously, you hadn't died of infection or, or shock. Wow. But they were using that exactly the same principle after the First World War with people with war wounds. Wow. I mean, what a what an extraordinary thing. If it works. Well, we know it works. It's just... If you could survive the pain, like, I just can't get over how much that would hurt. People were a lot tougher in those days, weren't they, than we are? I mean, we don't put out of it to oh, any yeah. pain, do we? Nope. It's interesting that treaties on the disease are very often sympathetic to the male sufferers, where the women are put in the role of contaminators. Oh, goodness. Some doc- Even the wives? Well, some doctors prescribed drinking chocolate laced with mercury so that men could treat their wives and families without them realising it and uh, without dear papa having to admit what he'd been up to. Oh, are you kidding me? No. So wait, are they giving it to the children too then? Oh, yes, you'd hand it round to the whole family. You'd say, come on, kids, come on, missus. Let's let's all oh sit God. down and have a nice cup of hot chocolate. Mm. But there was sympathy for the unfortunate woman who found herself married to a man carrying the scars of the disease, as this English ballad shows. A woman that to a whoremonger is wed is in a most desperate case. She scarce dares perform her duties in bed with one of condition so base. But sometimes he's bitten with Turnbull fleas the pox, or some other infectious disease. Because Turnbull Street was synonymous with bawdy behaviour. It's like Soho became after oh. that. So It crops up in Henry VII Part Two. Not Henry VII, he didn't write one. It crops up in Henry IV Part Two when Falstaff says <laughs> the wildness of his youth and the feasts he had done about Turnbull Street. So yeah, it's a famous place. Hmm. Yeah, skipping forward several centuries, with antibiotics, attitudes changed instantly. From frenzy of fear to a complete lack of interest, a complete lack of concern. Oh, jeez. Oh, it's fine. Well, you don't think about it now, do you? And the disease that terrified people over centuries, we never think about it, do we? I don't know. We had some very graphic photos shown to us when we were kids of what could happen if you were indiscreet. You definitely thought about it when they showed you the photos. Oh, blimey. (laughs) Yes, I didn't have that at our school. Oh, be glad. Be glad. Syphilis wasn't the worst. It was gonorrhea had the worst pictures. Ooh, our poodle got gonorrhea. What? How does a poodle get that? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Promiscuous poodle. <laughs> I was living in a different country at the time. I just got a letter from my dad saying <laughs> Coco's got gonorrhea. <laughs> a vaccine couldn't be made because the treponema, the cause of syphilis, was so fragile in laboratory cultures that it, and they, couldn't, they couldn't make a vaccine out of it. Oh. And even if it could be, what would be the reaction of inoculating children against a venereal disease? People, people <laughs> might be a bit squeamish about it, mightn't they? Well, I mean, look at what we're dealing with right now with COVID vaccines. There are so many people that are sure that it's going to do something horrible to you or just anti-vaccines entirely. I'm still disappointed that I didn't get a prehensile tail. Oh, you not got one. <laughs> No, my husband said you might even who knows you might even get a tail i was like oh if it's prehensile i'm going for it because <laughs> that would be amazing <laughs> and then nothing happened <laughs> well the scary thing is that with the overuse of antibiotics and the accompanying decline in their efficacy i don't think i've ever said the word efficacy so much in one, in one time <laughs> syphilis could return so it's still good advice to avoid blotchy people <laughs> Did Henry VIII have syphilis? Yes. Almost, cert- <laughs> almost certainly not. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> Who might you? I've got a book called "Was Chaucer Murdered?" 
And I bought it thinking, oh, that sounds interesting. And on the back, it says, it says pretty much that. Almost certainly not. <laughs> I'm not going to read it then. <laughs> it had been suggested that his sudden change of personality at the age of 40 or so was the cause of, caused by the madness that syphilis brought. And this seems unlikely. If he had had it, his children would have been affected and they showed no signs of it. Yeah. And also, if he caught it in his youth, he lived long enough for the signs of tertiary syphilis to kick in. And there was no signs of that. I mean, we'd have heard of his nose had dropped off, wouldn't we? Yes, we would have. For how much information we ended up with his medical history, mm. that definitely would have been added in there. Yeah, and his physicians never mentioned anything of the disease. Yeah, if he'd had it, he wouldn't necessarily have kept it secret, because Francis I of France had it, and everyone knew he had it. So mm -hmm. yeah, it, was, it was the luck of the draw, I think, really. Some people pointed to the ulcer on Henry's leg, which wouldn't heal, but I mean, that could have been anything. Again, yeah. if you haven't got antibiotics, then maybe things don't heal. Yeah, and the leg wasn't a main place for an ulcer. No, that would no. have been far, far down the way. Too far down the way. <laughs> <laughs> However, if he did have it, he would have infected his wives. And one of the symptoms of female syphilis is miscarriage. And Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn clocked up six miscarriages between them. There are no recorded pregnancies for his last three wives. But, you know, right. there could have been many reasons for this, but not necessarily syphilis. But that. You know, that's one of the... Yeah. As to why he went from mild-mannered young Henry to psychopathic tyrant Henry at the age of 40. Well, that could have been a head injury caused in jousting. It could have been mm -hmm. several small head injuries of the type that footballers and boxers get. Yeah, used to mm -hmm. be being punched drunk. Or Kyra Kramer suggests that he might have had the Clouds syndrome, which is caused by genetic mutations. And that kicks in around that age and causes personality changes. Hmm. So that's the end of syphilis and the Tudor era, although, as we know, the pox goes on and on through the centuries until the invention of penicillin. There was a strange development during the 19th century when a link was talked about between syphilis and genius. But when you look at the list of sufferers, you can sort of see where the idea came from. We've got Schubert, Donizetti, Schumann, Smetner, Wolf, Delia, Scott Joplin, Baudelaire, Flaubert, Goncourt, Daudet, Maupassant, Oscar Wilde, James Joyce, Monet, Gauguin, Van Gogh, Toulouse-Lautrec, and Nietzsche. Did the ensuing madness take the mind into different creative places? That's a possibility. Hmm. But there are obviously many, many sufferers over the centuries. That were not geniuses. Were not geniuses. <laughs> and I don't think, <laughs> I don't think it was worth it. No. no. So, <laughs> I think that's probably quite enough about syphilis. I'm sure we'll encounter it many times over the course of the podcast because it was so prevalent. So many people had it. You say heads yeah. of state had it. So, it's now safe to take your hands away from your ears. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> so, there we go. And that is that's the sort of beginning of a series we were going to do, isn't it? We were going to do each season. We were going to do yes. a different illness. So it's going to be sweating sickness next season. We've got smallpox for Elizabeth. Tuberculosis we were discussing for Edward because there is a possibility he hmm. could have had tuberculosis. What do we want to do for Mary? Maybe, um, gyne well, sorry, Mary, but maybe sort of gynecological because she had some phantom pregnancies, yeah. didn't she? and. Yeah, which possibly could have been cancer. Yeah. Well, we've got plenty of time to decide what we give Mary. <laughs> Poor Mary. <laughs> I do find it interesting that smallpox, when Elizabeth was diagnosed with smallpox, Elizabeth is the person that really got me into the Tudor age. I can't, can't even tell you how many books I've <laughs> read about her. Um, she called the doctor a knave, which was a very bad word at the time. Mm -hmm. A lying knave, because he said, you have smallpox, which she was saying was the French pox, which was syphilis. Mm. And she's so unlikely to have got syphilis. And if she got it from very. the corrupt air, obviously, that the clergy get it from. Mm -hmm. And she obviously didn't, because there would have been so much more damage happened to her in her lifetime. She lived a very long time. But it's interesting that they linked smallpox with a venereal disease. I still to this day have not figured out how that leap comes about that smallpox is from... Was that a general understanding or was that just her misunderstanding what the doctor had said? That was a general understanding at the time. They called smallpox the French disease. Oh. 
So I don't know, but the reason she was so angry was because it basically said that she was sleeping around. Yeah, I mean, she's the Virgin Queen. I mean, that is, that's, that's what she's all about, really, isn't it? Yeah, so it was an interesting conflation of the two mm. ideas. Yeah, I don't know what got me into the Tudors. I'm not, I don't think I'm a normal Tudorite, really. I've not. I don't, I've never seen the Tudors. I've never read any Philippa Gregory. And, and I'm not actually that interested in Anne Boleyn. <laughs> Anne Boleyn wasn't who pulled me into it. It was definitely Elizabeth. And I'm trying to remember, Glenda Jackson played Elizabeth in the 70s. Yeah. And I first saw that with my grandmother. And she explained to me how she was basically the first queen. Because Mary... In her opinion and her family's opinion, you can't count Mary the first because she married Philip and Philip became the controlling factor in her life. They said that Elizabeth was the first true queen regnant because she didn't have a man that she had to rely on or appease. Does that mean that all, all queens that marry instantly don't become I mean, our own dear queen? No. Does she not no. count? No, they were, they were arguing or... She was explaining to me that Mary was very much a product of her time and that she gave up her right to be independent when she got married. Yeah. And her vows were very much, I now give you everything of mine. Mm. There was the only reason she didn't give up so much control was because Parliament had put in quite a number of restrictions to what he was allowed to do, like getting them into war, which he then got them into war anyway because Mary agreed to it. With that, he was still able to manipulate and control her, whereas Elizabeth didn't seem to have that. She stood on her own. She was the first woman to stand on her own. Yeah. That was my grandma's stance on that. And I didn't seriously get hooked until my grandma picked up a picture book of Elizabeth's clothes and how they changed from when she was a child. Like the the portrait of her when she's 13, it's the most stunning red dress. Mm -hmm. And then you get to her crazy, crazy clothing that you can't even put your arms down because they, uh, it's not a crinoline. It's like a, it's a wooden seat that sits around her waist. And I can't remember what that's oh, called. Oh, yes, I know what you mean, yeah. It'd be quite handy for putting a cup of tea on, I suppose. <laughs> Yes, they were flat. Mm. They were completely flat and you could barely move. And I found that really, really fascinating when I was a kid. I saw a picture, this isn't Elizabeth, but I saw a picture the other day of a girl with the biggest ruff I've ever seen. <laughs> it must have stuck about two feet all around her. I mean, it's, she couldn't have got, she must have had to have put her head down to get through doors. Those were insanely heavy and they were held together in those patterns by pins. So pins became very valuable at that, at specifically when the lace ruffs came, because that was the only way to hold them up. There were these tiny, tiny pins. And that's where the term pin money comes from. That's when it became Ooh. a saying, because you needed to have enough money to own the pins to hold your lace up. <laughs> it was, this the fashion is what really got me. Oh, there is a BBC series called a stitch in time where they recreate the clothing of the past right. it is fantastic absolutely love it and i really really wish they'd do some tudor clothing they didn't they did charles the second um a dutch photo they did mary antoinette's famous portrait of her in that diaphanous gown mm -hmm. that was a scandal but it, it's a very good, very good show. I, I recommend that to everybody. And it's called A Stitch in Time. I should look it up. Good name. Well, that was a jollier end than syphilis. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> At least we got onto something that wasn't so uh, oh. depressing. It was grim. It was grim. <laughs> fascinating. I found it fascinating reading about it. I've read two books on syphilis and I found both fascinating. But It really is. I wonder if anybody's done the maps of syphilis. Like, you know how you get the Black Plague? They've got these maps with arrows showing exactly the 
route of travel so you can see how the merchants mm. were moving. I wonder if anybody's done that for syphilis, because that would be fascinating, especially if it went with the mercenaries. Yeah, well, we could do it as we go along. Yeah, let's see if we can figure out how to get that going. I mean, part of it, reach out part of it with the naming, as we said. Yes. So follow that. And um, Okay, there we go. Another, another little project. We've got so much time on our hands. <laughs> <laughs> but at least I'm, I'm so happy with reading about Isabella. After reading Ensign and Deadly, that was really the downer of the season. <laughs> Hopefully that's it. We're done. <laughs> no more people like that. Well, I was thinking, I was talking about this with Rob. I don't think he was listening, but I was talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> I was saying the Via and Poynings seem to be to be the Middle Ages. Yes. Empson and Dudley seem to have stepped forward into a different time. Yeah. 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 Totally. Hmm. And once they have started that, it just continued along that line. It really, really is. It, but they're parallel. They're along the same time frame. Hmm just two different worlds yeah which i thought was quite interesting yes because when did the middle ages end lots of people say lots of different things don't they i'm inclined to think it's when the dissolution of the monasteries that's why i think i'd plonk it but also it could say yeah when empson and dudley started changing politics Mm -hmm. and it's just really hard i don't think you can pinpoint it's got to be several decades where that change occurs it can't just be a single event Mm. because when you put together all of these little things you can see it creeping over the top of a cliff and once it gets to a point there's no way they can go backwards Mm. there is a point of no return but it's not in a single day and then it has to move from the impetus of where it started to the rest of the countries and some of that, I think, has to do with warfare changing as well. Yeah. You could no longer have people in castles because cannons existed and it would take out castle walls. That's when we started getting these beautiful big houses because a castle was no longer of any use. Mm. If you were going to be attacked, you had no recourse for safety. Yeah, that'd be an interesting thing to put out on Facebook or whatever. So ask, ask mm-hmm. other people when they think the Middle Ages ended. Yeah. If indeed they have. Well, mm-hmm. actually, you know what? That would be a really fantastic special episode. When did the Middle Ages end? Yeah. Mm. And the various parts of Tudor England that feel like that could have been the start of the change. Okay. Add it to the list. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to our gigantic list. That is the end of our episode on syphilis. We hope you've enjoyed it. Yeah. <laughs> we'll join us for the next episode on... We don't know. We're not we sure. Don't know. <laughs> we don't know. It depends where we put this. Thank you for listening. You can find details of the podcast and contact us on... In the meantime, thus with imagined wings our swift seen flies. Still be kind and eke out our performance with your mind. Goodbye. Goodbye. We don't have nightmares. No. <laughs>